uh, known as the Herod's Temple. And so the disciples ask him three questions. When will this happen? That is in reference to when, was, when is this temple going to be destroyed? What is the sign of your coming again? And what is the sign of the end times? Now, Jesus, in Matthew 24 and 25, known as the Olivet Discourse, because that's the location they were at when he taught this to his disciples, gave these words to them, he did not answer the first question as to when the temple would be destroyed, but historically we know that in A.D. 70, uh, the Romans destroyed the temple and took apart much of Jerusalem and persecuted the Jewish people uh, during that, that reign of terror. And uh, when it comes to the sign of his coming... Uh, he says, I'm, I am going to come again, and the sign of the end time. So they ask Jesus these questions, and so what you have in the verses, uh, particularly in chapter 24, is his answer and response. Now, my desire in this series, we're, we're talking about living in light of eternity. My desire in this series, as I said earlier, is that we learn how to move out of a realm of fear into a realm of faith when it comes to the end times, or when's God coming back, when's Jesus going to return. We want to live in freedom. So when things come upon us, like a pandemic uh, that has hit our world here recently, the COVID-19, uh, that we don't allow that fear to drive our lives. We don't want to be encapsulated in fear, but we want to live in faith because we know who is in control of all things. And God has very strategically planned out how he is going to bring this world into, uh, in, into its end time, and that is how he's going to unfold his plan as far as restoring everything that sin has destroyed. Now, we have had a very tough 2020. <laughs> so in January, people thought World War III was going to happen, and of course, and in February, we had massive fires all over the place, particularly in Australia. And then March hits, and we have the coronavirus that begins spreading around the world. And then April hits, and we're getting uh, pictures of aliens and all these things that are coming out. And <laughs> whether they're true or not, I don't know. But uh, anyways, supposedly NASA let those uh, photographs out for public consumption. And then, you know, we come into um, this past month, May, and now we got murder hornets. Uh, who named these hornets, by the way? Murder hornets. Uh, so I don't know about murder hornets, but I, do know, I did hear this, that if you deep fry them and drizzle them in chocolate, they're quite tasty. I'll let you figure that out for yourself. I'm not going to go down that road. But if you're afraid of murder hornets infesting your property, I guess their natural predator are uh, praying mantises. So get you some of those and plant them around your yard, and, and that may help you out. So people are asking the question, well, is the coronavirus, is this God's judgment on the world, uh, you know, like God judging um, the Egyptians back in Moses' day, and he's bringing plagues upon us, or is this the sign that this is the end of the world? And people are asking a lot of questions, and I dropped in on a Facebook discussion that was happening uh, they were asking the question, you know, is this the end of the world? Is this sign of the times? How does the world end? How does God wrap all of this up? And so it was very interesting just watching the dialogue going back and forth between people. And there's so much misunderstanding, so much um, misinformation out there about how the world comes to an end and, and so on and so forth. So uh, we meet, need to note that when Adam and Eve sinned against God and sin entered into the realm of humanity's existence, not only did Adam and Eve suffer the results of that, but so did planet Earth. And we know that humanity is broken, and we know that the world, the planet upon which we live, is broken. That's why we have volcanoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and all those kinds of things. So when you're thinking about end times and what God's seeking to do, if you were to take the book of Genesis on one side and the book of Revelation on the other side, everything that sin distorted and destroyed in Genesis, God is going to restore and make new in the book of Revelation. Everything we have in between those two bookends is called history. And as history unfolds, God's plan is coming closer and closer to the end in which he will culminate all of this by destroying the present heavens and earth and recreating them 
devoid of any kind of sin, right? So sin's destructiveness, uh, what broke our planet will no longer be in existence. What broke our lives will no longer be in existence. So how does that transpire? What does that look like? Again, God did not leave us to wonder. He calls it prophecy. And again, prophecy is not in the Bible to scare us. It is there to prepare us so that we don't have to become fearful about everything that is said or, you know, propagated uh, in, you know, media or wherever. You know, for example, somebody says, well, you know, um, global warming, plant's going to end in 12 years. Well, I'm sorry, uh, but that's not how it ends. Now, global warming, as we're going to see in one of the judgments, really does take place. But it's at God's hand, not mankind's. So if you know these things, you don't have to automatically like lapse into fear, jump into fear, and say, oh, oh, no, the world's coming to an end in 12 years, and we're all going to burn up. That's not, that's not God's plan. It's not his design. But I do want you to know this. God's ultimate plan has never been to pay humanity back for their sin, but to bring us back. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did God do? He immediately covered their sin. He immediately took the life of an innocent party, an animal, and took the covering and covered Adam and Eve's sin, not to pay them back for what they had done, but to bring them back. All throughout the Old Testament, you have an Old Testament sacrificial system. The purpose of that sacrificial system was not to pay humanity back for their sin, but to bring them back in a right relationship with their creator. And so that was in place until Jesus came on the scene, and then Jesus became God's ultimate payment for humanity's sin so that he would no longer cover our sin, but he could offer forgiveness of our sin. The word forgive means to cancel a debt that you owe. And so the wages of sin is what? Death. It's the debt that we owe. Jesus came to pay our debt on our behalf so that through a relationship with him, we may have all of our sin debt canceled and paid in full. And God says on the cross through Jesus, it is finished. Payment has been made. And so Jesus has provided us a way into the presence of our creator because sin held us back from that ability to enter into the presence of a holy God. That's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to what? To take away the sin of the world. Not to cover it, but to take it away. So remember, in the Bible, there are three deaths. There is spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. All three of those are the result of sin in the realm of humanity. And so spiritual death means I'm disconnected from God. I have no spiritual connection to him. This is the way we come into the world. The wages of sin is death. We experience physical death. Still, one out of one dies. Everybody, unless the rapture comes, is going to die from some physical ailment or accident or whatever it might be. And then there's eternal death. If I die physically, while I'm spiritually dead, separated from God, I will spend eternity separated from him forever. So what did Jesus do? He came to provide the answer, the solution to that problem. Jesus brings to us spiritual life. He says, when you have relationship with me, I breathe into you the spirit of God, and I take your dead spirit and I make it alive. I breathe into you spiritual life. Yes, you will physically die, but there again, when you die physically, your spirit soul moves out of your body into the presence of the Lord. God will one day resurrect that body, make it new, reinstate it with his soul and spirit, and thus it will be in its perfected state of being for all of eternity. Therefore, if you are spiritually alive, you will never, ever, ever have the fear of experiencing eternal separation or eternal death. Jesus came to give you eternal life. That is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the message that God has given to the church. And so when Jesus left this world, after his crucifixion and resurrection, he ascended back into heaven, and the angels looking at his disciples said, behold, the way he has left is the way he's going to come back, that Jesus is going to come back. So what transpires between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus? And that's kind of what we're focusing on. And we'll talk about the second coming next Sunday uh, because that is a glorious I event. And uh, so this time frame that we live in now from the time that Jesus ascended is called the age of grace or the age of the church. It is every human being has opportunity to have relationship with Jesus Christ and to experience spiritual life, 
and life beyond the grave and spiritual, uh, eternal life. So um, the next event on God's calendar is called the rapture of the church. So the second coming of Jesus comes in two phases. That is God's next event. What prophecy needs to be fulfilled before that happens? None. Zero nada. It is God's next event. When the rapture, the church is taken out of this world, all believers taken out of this world, that sets off what is called the period of the tribulation we're going to talk about today. That's a seven-year period of time. At the beginning of the tribulation, there is the rise of the Antichrist, and we talked about him a couple of weeks ago, if you want to go back and look at that message, um, and the rise of the Antichrist, who will be the world leader, the dominant world leader who will establish a one-world government, a one-world economy, as well as a one-world religion. He has a sidekick known as the, as the false prophet. And so you have the satanic trinity. Satan has always wanted to be worshipped as God. That was his heart's longing and desire. And you can read about that back in Isaiah 14, the five I wills of, G, uh, of Satan. And um, so you have, you know, Satan the father, so to speak, and you have the Antichrist like the son and the false prophet like the Holy Spirit. So although they are not God, never have been God, they're all created beings. And so uh, during this time of tribulation, prior to Jesus' second coming, the tribulation will kind of climax with what is known as the Battle of Armageddon. And it is at the Battle of Armageddon where the nations of the world, the armies of the world will gather in the valley of Megiddo uh, in, in order to war against Israel, to war against God, and then Jesus comes back with the church, with angels, and defeats Satan and um, places Satan and his demonic beings in the abyss, and there, then Jesus establishes his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. He will rule and reign on earth. At the end of that, Satan is loosed for a season, defeated again, and then God will destroy the present heavens and earth recreate them, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem will come down and be the capital city of this earth. And so you can read about all of this in Matthew chapter 24 and verses 4 through 25. Jesus gives us the parallels concerning uh, the tribulation period. Now the tribulation period is also known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins at the time of the tribulation. It climaxes with the second coming of Christ. And uh, Here's what I want you to understand and why the church is not a part of the tribulation period. Now, there are those who, will, who, who believe they are, that the church will be raptured out mid-tribulation or the church will go through all the tribulation and the rapture and second coming of Jesus is one and the same. But if you were to take the verses dealing with the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ and parallel them, they're not one and the same. For example, when Jesus comes in the rapture, his feet does not, do not touch the earth. When he comes in the second coming, his feet do touch the earth on the Mount of Olives. And there's all kinds of distinctions between the two. I happen to... Um, adhere to the premillennial view that the church is raptured out, and here's why. Because the tribulation has nothing to do with the church. The tribulation has everything to do with Israel, and it has everything to do with the unbelieving world. And you're going to see this as you look at the judgments that are rolled out during the tribulation period. There are three sets of judgments, all in sevens. There are seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bull judgments that all um, are you know, poured out upon the earth during this, this period of time called the, the tribulation. And so uh, we're going to kind of look at those uh, really briefly as we take a, like a quick tour through the book of Revelation. Now, as we approach that, let me just remind you that when you come to the book of Revelation, it is a unique book. Now, it's the only book in the Bible that says right up front, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that blessed is the one who reads these words, who hear them, and who heed them. And, uh, but you have to understand that the book of Revelation was written in a language that is different than we're used to. So there are different, different um, forms of literature that make up the scripture. There's narratives, there are poetry, there are songs. There are wisdom literature, and in Revelation, we have apocalyptic literature. So apocalyptic literature is something that is, is appealing to the mind. It's, give, it's a very visual language. So it's, it's like giving you uh, language in word pictures, which, by the way, is the way your brain operates anyways, is that your brain thinks in word pictures. If I say the word elephant, you don't think, you don't think of the word 
elephant, you, you picture an elephant, yeah, an actual physical elephant in your mind. That's just the way our minds work. And so the apocalyptic language is designed to elicit different kinds of responses. Now, here's the problem with the book of Revelation. Because the apocalyptic language is difficult to discern sometimes. Some of it's mysterious. We can't even discern what John is trying to convey. But much of it is discernible. So we're going to hit the discernible areas, all right? When I get list out the, the um, judgments for you, I'm just giving you this is what it means. Now, exactly how that happens, is it, you know, uh, is it a, a, an asteroid coming from the heavens that creates this havoc on the earth, or is it an atomic bomb? I do not know. But we do know what the devastation is going to be. And so if you want to characterize the book of Revelation, especially the judgments of Revelation, it is the word devastation, because with every judgment that is, that is rolled out, it creates devastation in the realm of humanity as well as upon planet Earth. Now, the last thing I want you to understand is this. When we come to tribulation, uh, we as Westerners, we are linear thinkers, right? So you go point A to point B to point C, to, and so we kind of roll things out. So that's the way the book of Revelation rolls out the judgments, okay? So you have the seal judgments, and then seven seals open, it leads to the trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet is sounded, it leads to the bowl judgments. That is in a very linear fashion. However, um, that, that is really the wrong way to look at the book because in Middle, Middle Eastern thought, they think more in terms of circular. So I want you to think of these um, judgments in terms of concentric circles, in other words, um, one is you know, evolving into the other. That's, it's kind of like if you threw a, uh, a rock in, the, in a pond, that you begin to see the rippling effects. And so as these judgments are unfolded, there is the rippling effect. It's like concentric circles that one on top of the other, and, and they're all kind of mixed together. So it's a circular kind of um, judgment that happens here on, on planet Earth. And I know you're all so, so excited to, to understand about these judgments, right? Yeah. But I, <laughs> I don't want you to get to heaven and say, Lord, what's, what's with all these judgments? I never, I never read that and, and be embarrassed about it, okay? So. so when you look at Matthew chapter 24, and I've put this on, your, on the outline. It's going to be coming up, and some of you have a copy of it. Those of you who are here. The first three and a half years of that tribulation, Jesus explains that in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14. Verse 15 of Matthew 24, you hit mid-tribulation. And then the last three and a half years are found in uh, verses 15 through 25 of Matthew 24. Although we are going to be hitting these in the book of Revelation. But the, what the explanation Jesus gives is kind of a um, more vague explanation of these judgments as they are rolled out. So if you'll go to Revelation um, chapter 6 is where we begin. And so in the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, is when the seal judgments are, are begin to, to take place. And so when you think of a seal, think of a scroll. Because in chapter 5, um, the scene is in heaven, and there's the scroll, the title deed to the earth, and, and they're crying in heaven because no one is worthy to take the scroll, the title deed of the earth, and to unroll, and to break its seals, and to unroll the scroll. And then all of a sudden, uh, there is a voice in heaven that says, oh, yes, there is. There is one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and it is Jesus. The title deed of the earth has always been his, rightfully his, and so he is the one who begins un unrolling this. So think of it in terms of a scroll, for in the Roman times, it might have been a deed to a property, it might have been a will, and so you would write something, you'd roll it, seal it, write something, roll it, seal it, write something, roll it, seal it, and it with each seal, it said, no one has tampered with this document. And so this breaking of the seal is what unleashes the judgment. And so here's the first one. The seal number one is speaking of the Antichrist as he comes in peace. I watched as the lamb opened the first of seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice of thun like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. 
Now, we looked at this a couple weeks ago when we looked at the Antichrist, so let me just touch on it briefly. The white horse is a, it speaks of conquest. It speaks of victory. And so the Antichrist will ride forth in order to conquer the world. Notice he has a bow, but he's not carrying any arrows. He is not going to conquer the world by force, but he is going to bring peace uh, and world domination on the platform of peace. And so the world will embrace enthusiastically a, 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 a planet that has been war-torn. As we looked at it in the very first message, there's been very few years in the history of our world where there are not wars going on somewhere on our planet. Very few. And so the planet is worn-torn and worn-weary, and now you have the church that's been raptured out of the world, so like approximately 3 billion people are now gone, and this sets off all kinds of havoc in, in the world in which we live. And so um, the Antichrist will, will come, and he will come on the platform of peace, and he's going to be, bring peace primarily in the Middle East and the conflicts that are going on there. And the Antichrist at that time will make a covenant with Israel. And in that covenant, he's going to allow them to rebuild their temple. Now, certainly it's not going to be the magnificent structure of Herod uh, the Great, uh, but it will enable them to reestablish their sacrificial system. The Antichrist then revises a ten-nation confederation, which, by the way, most of that is in place already, that will dominate the Middle East and the rest of the world. And so think about this. You have this this ruler who's going to rise up and he's going to bring peace and he's going to bring prosperity. Most people in the world will sell their soul for that, to have a time of peace and a time of prosperity when there's no more warring going on, at least initially. So he has this covenant with Israel that he will protect them so that they can worship as they choose. But um, this peace will be a false sense of peace because it will not last very long. Listen, you cannot have peace without the Prince of Peace. This world will never know peace until the Prince of Peace, Jesus, comes back and establishes his millennial kingdom here on earth that there will actually be peace in the land that is, is not going to be rocked uh, out of its place. Then the seal, the second seal, is broken, and that is wor worldwide warfare. It says, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came, the one that was fiery red. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was a, given a large sword. Now, obviously, red is the sign of bloodshed. Somebody is fiery. Uh, and so... Uh, remember when Jesus in Matthew 24 says, when you hear about wars and rumors of wars, this is like child, you know, childbirth pains, um, contractions, and the more, uh, the closer it comes to Jesus' second coming, and so here's the circular thought in the book of Revelation, is that those wars are going to intensify, and they're going to intensify in frequency as well as bloodshed. And you're going to see this as you go throughout these uh, various judgments that the warring that will happen on earth uh, becomes more tense and more frequent. Here's the third seal is the fatal famine. So when you have war, often with war, especially worldwide kinds of wars, uh, it often comes on its heels with famine. And so it says in verse 5, when the lamb broke the third seal, he says, I, I heard a third living creature coming. Come, I looked and beheld, there was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what I sound like a voice of many four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. And so black speaks of the word famine. It follows the warfare. What do these scales mean? Well, scales were normally used in that day and time, uh, back in the Roman era, uh, and certainly at other times, but to, was to weigh out uh, uh, gold. And so what he is simply saying here is that food will become very scarce, that you will have to work an entire day just to provide enough for one meal. 
Inflation will be superinflated to the point where if the median income was $41,000, it would take $41,000 just for you to purchase $1,400 worth of goods and services. That's how hyperinflation will take place during this, this time of warfare and famine. I mean, on a much smaller scale, we see things like that outbreaking in Venezuela and Brazil. Uh, it is said that during Hitler's regime, that people would, the more wealthy people would bring barrels, uh, wheelbarrows filled with money just to buy a loaf of bread. Or think about United States after World War I, uh, inflation took over, and then all of a sudden we had the Great Depression. So this is kind of what's going to be happening as this seal, as this judgment begins to unfold and to cascade itself here on planet Earth. And so the Antichrist will use this to his advantage in order to move people into giving him allegiance. Seal number four, it says, The fourth seal, I heard a voice, the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death. And Hades was following close behind him. Notice how death and Hades are often linked together in the book of Revelation. What is he talking about here? Hades, remember, is, it is uh, hell. Um, in the Old Testament, it was called Sheol. and the New Testament, was called Hades. And Hades and Sheol were in two compartments, Abraham's bosom or paradise and, and that of Hades. This is the abode of the dead. And so those who were Jewish people who died in their faith would go to Abraham's paradise. Jesus emptied that side of Hades out when he was resurrected from the grave. And so when a person dies apart, spiritually dead, apart from Jesus, they move into the realm of Hades. So Hades uh, is giving up the body and death is giving up the soul. And so it says that they were given the power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And so here you have uh, plagues, death. Um, the pale horse speaks of pestilence, plagues, whatever it is. Now notice here that in the world, one fourth of the world's population dies during this this particular seal. Now, what is the wild beast? Well, we really don't know. So this is a part of the apocalyptic language. You can't be dogmatic and say, well, it's got to be referring to maybe a lion or a bear or whatever. I think more in keeping with plagues and pestilence, it would be more apt to be a rat. Because when there is pestilence and disease, rats are great carriers of disease and can carry disease in many different places very, very quickly. Rats killed a third in Europe during the bubonic plague syndrome. And, and rats, you can kind of go into an area and eradicate rats, like 95% of them, go back in a year later, and they've repopulated. And so maybe it's rats that are carrying disease across the world, uh, you know, across certain areas of the Middle East. Can't be dogmatic about that, but certainly this plague takes out one-fourth of the earth's population. Seal number five, we have the, the martyrdom of, the, of, this, of believers. And I opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And each one was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were, be, were to be killed, as they have been, was completed. Now you said, Oh, wait a minute. I thought the church wasn't there. They're not. All right? So the church is raptured. But guess what happens? When the rapture takes place, wonder how many people sat in church, heard about the rapture before, didn't really believe it, didn't really think about it, didn't really contemplate it, but then it actually happens, and they're like, oh, I remember somebody saying something about it. I remember Pastor Greg talking about that, that the church was going to be raptured out. I think I'd better give my life to Jesus. In addition to this, you'll recall that uh, there will be 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jewish flaming evangelists that will be taking the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And so the gospel is going out during the tribulation. Many people will be saved, but most of them, probably two-thirds of them, will die as martyrs. And so these are the individuals that you are seeing here that have been martyred during the tribulation. And during the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the Antichrist 
will ramp up his persecution against believers to such a degree, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, and verses 16 through 22, when you see the abomination of desolation and the Antichrist is about to ramp up his persecution, flee for the mountains. Don't stop and pick up anything. Don't go into your house and try to... There's no... Uh, valuable thing that you may think you have that's worth your life, so flee for the mountains. In fact, Jesus went on to say, if God did not cut those days short, no one would have survived. And number six, zeal number six is there's a great earthquake, and I don't have time to read all these, so we're just going to skip through some of them, but that's in verses 12 through 16. And so you'll note that earthquakes always happen either at the beginning or at the ending of each set of judgments. And then seal number seven in chapter eight and verse one is that there is silence in heaven. You know, in the Old Testament, it's called Selah. It's like, we got to pause. It's like, this is like, whoa. The things that are happening, the things that are transpiring, and, and these are the least of the judgments. Now we hit mid-tribulation. Jesus said that midway through the tribulation, three and a half years in, there will be what is called the abomination of desolation. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. So let me just kind of hit three things that are going to happen. There's going to be a war in heaven, and that is Satan and, and his demonic beings are going to be warring with the angels of God. Now, at that point, Satan is confined to planet Earth, no longer has access to the heavenlies, and he is, he is rip-roaring mad. And therefore, that's why he intensifies his persecution against the Jews and the believers is because he's so angry with God, but he can't get at God. He can't even have access into his presence anymore. And therefore, he takes it out upon what? God's children, right? So what better way to get at somebody than to get at their children? You, know, you can do a lot of things to me, and it may hurt me in some way, but if you did something to my kids or my grandkids... That would absolutely kill me, right? It would just devastate me. So that's kind of what he's doing. And so he sets up what's known the abomination of desolation. He breaks his covenant with Israel. He goes into the temple. He sets up his image in the temple and defiles the temple. This image, this beast, is given the ability to speak. And the false prophet is performing signs, wonders, and miracles. And as a result of that, the world is forced to bow down and to acknowledge the Antichrist as the one and true God. And those who do not, you're martyred, right? So then there's the mark of the beast. People are constantly asking about the mark of the beast. What is the mark of the beast? What is the mark of the beast? I got to know what the mark of the beast is so I don't get the mark of the beast. Well, um, nobody really knows what the mark of the beast is. But here's what I do know. That if you're going about to receive the mark of the beast, you know you're about to receive it because you have to make that decision as to whether or not you're going to receive it. Back when... People were given in the United States Social Security numbers. Everybody thought that was the mark of the beast. I can't take a Social Security number. You can't get a, give me a number. That's the mark of the beast. I can't do it. Right? So uh, we, we've attached the mark of the beast to all kinds of individuals and people all throughout history. Just let it be known that you either choose to take the mark or you choose not to take the mark. If you choose to take the mark, you'll have the ability to buy and sell goods and services. If you don't, you won't. But if you, and if you don't take the mark, more than likely you will be martyred in the latter half of the tribulation. So that brings us into the second half of the tribulation. And this is known as the great tribulation. Because here you have the trumpet judgments and you have the, the uh, bowl judgments. Now, at the beginning of the trumpet judgments, there are seven angels who are standing before God. And uh, the rabbis taught that there were seven archangels but the Bible doesn't tell us that, does not bear that out. The only archangel that is named in the Bible is Michael. But they, they base that partly on, you remember um, back when uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, you know, they were barren, didn't have any children. And so he, Zachariah is in the temple, he's offering incense to God, and he's performing his priestly duties. And all of a sudden there is an angel that appears to him, Angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel says to him, I've been standing in the presence of God. And so the, the rabbis assume then that he is an archangel, although the Bible doesn't bear that out. Needless to, regardless of that, angels play a huge role in the tribulation period. And uh, later on, um, maybe this year or next year, I'm going to do a whole study on angels. I haven't done one in a long time in this church. Um, it's been many years. Uh, and they, play, they not, only, not only play a huge role in 
the tribulation, they play a huge role in the realm of the church. But we are often unaware of that role that they're playing, and therefore we don't see their activity as, as we could. All right, so here's the unleashing of the trumpet judgments. Uh, chapter 8 of Revelation, verse 7, the first angel sounded the trumpet, and there came hail, fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, whatever it was that was cast down to the earth, you know, it really doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is one-third of the earth's vegetation is consumed. Um, so that creates all kinds of massive disruption, even to the hydrological cycles that which are dependent upon vegetation for the movement of the way moisture moves around the earth and, and all the fallout of that. Trumpet number two, he says that, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So you have sea and marine life, a third of that destroyed. And people say, well, is that a meteor? Is an asteroid hidden in the earth? I don't know. Um, but it obviously is something that is hurled from the sky, from the, uh, you know, from the galaxies into the earth. And you say, well, what are the odds of that happening? Well, according to USA Today, the odds of that happening in 2032 are 1 in 62,000. You say, well, that's not very good odds. Well, if I were offering you a $62 million lottery ticket and said you have a 1 in 62,000 chance of winning you would probably buy it. You'd probably jump over me to buy it, right? Because right now, if you buy a lottery ticket, your odds are 1 in 250 million to, of winning. And yet people <laughs> jump, you know, you put it out there big enough, they're going to go after it. So if an asteroid or whatever it is hits, for example, the Atlantic Ocean, it is said that it will shoot a tidal wave taller than the Empire State Building, moving at the speed of a jet, and will wipe out the entire East Coast. Devastation. Trumpet number three. One-third of the fresh water is destroyed. I'm going to skip over these, some of these for the sake of time. And the third one is the earth's, one-third of the earth is, is blackened. Now, whether that's a result of maybe some kind of volcanic activity, uh, because many years ago there was a volcanic activity that, you know, the ash from a volcano can be so vast that it kind of blocks out the sun and it really sent the earth into a kind of a mild uh, mini ice age. Is, is that what's happening? I don't know, but I just do know this. When you start mixing cool air with warm air, you spawn off a lot of tornadoes. I lived in the South, lived through that many occasions. And then he says, trumpet number five in verses nine, chapter nine, verse one through three, is that, one, that humanity will be tormented by scorpions for five months. Now, where do these scorpions come from? They come from the abyss. Remember when Jesus dealt with the... Um, the Gardenian demoniac in, in the Gospels, he, said, he, asked the, he asked him, what is your name? And they said, Legion, because we are many. And so what did they ask Jesus not to do? Do not send us to the abyss. The abyss is a holding chamber for the worst of fallen angels. Now, how bad do you have to be to be a fallen angel and be in the abyss? You've got to be pretty bad. So some, they are unleashed out of the abyss, and for five months, they are given the ability to torture humanity. But watch this. During that five-month period of time, death takes a vacation. People will not, cannot die. You really don't want to be here. Somebody asked me one time, are you trying to scare us? I hope so. If, if, if that will get you to, to turn to Jesus, I'll take that rather than nothing. Trumpet number seven releases the bold judgments, and that's found in chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 15. And so you might, let's just take a, a, just a brief pause here. Why would God be telling us this? I mean, is it just to scare us? I don't think so. I, I think it's way beyond that. I think here's what God's saying, uh, two things. Number one. One of the reasons why God tells us about this, his judgment upon sin, is because we don't take sin very seriously. Let's just be honest. Well, it was just a white lie, or oh, it was just this, it wasn't that bad, I'm not that bad of a person, my sin, debt to God's, you know, probably minuscule, I might have about this much, you know, but now 
my spouse is like this much, I, you know, what, whatever it is. We just really don't understand how sin is such an affront to a holy God that demands his justice. Yes, God is gracious, loving, and merciful, but he's also holy, righteous, and just. And his justness says sin must be dealt with. It has to be paid. There has to be a price involved. And so the Bible says to us, in Hebrews 9.27, is appointed unto man die once, and after this the judgment. All right, so either Jesus is going to take your judgment for your sin, or you are. You're going to have to stand and give an account to your, for your sin and receive the justice of God, the wrath of God for your sin if you don't have Jesus standing in your place. Which is the second reason I think God gives us this, is to try to wake up the church to... Uh, the fact that we have been given marching orders to go into all the world and make disciples, again, another thing that we really don't take that seriously. It's like, oh, well, you know, the, if they make it, they make it. If they don't, they don't. Really not my responsibility. Really not my problem. Eh, wrong. We as the church of Jesus Christ will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, not determine whether or not we're going to heaven or hell, but be judged upon our works. And guess what one of those works is? Who have you taken the gospel to? Who are you discipling? Who have you made disciples of? I've told you to ask you to go to, to make disciples of all nations, and I gave you my Holy Spirit to empower you to do what was impossible for you to do on your own under his empowerment, his advisement, and he, I even told you I would give you the words to say if you would just make yourself available. And so this coming judgment um, frees us from needing to see justice done in our lifetime. Isn't it true that you have a sense of justice in you, right? If somebody does something, let's say that you, you, your, your car out here on the park lot, somebody comes in here while you're in church and they just cream your car, you know, like just bash it all. They don't leave a car. They don't leave anything. They just like, they drive off. What are you going to be yelling for? Justice, right? You want justice. They need to pay. They, they did the damage. They need to pay. But now what if I'm the person driving the car who hits somebody else's car, and now I don't want justice, right? I want mercy, right? So when we do something, we want mercy. When somebody does something to us, we cry out for justice. Where do we get that sense of justice? We got it from God because we're made in his image. You have to understand that God is just in what he is doing. In fact, you will find there's not one single angel. They are worshiping God for what is happening, and not one single angel stood there and said, but God, what you're doing is unfair, it's unjust, shouldn't be doing this. We just don't get the concept of sin. So here comes the bold judgments, and again, I'm just, I'm not going to read these. They're in the scripture. I've given you them on the outline, the, the verses of scripture. There are painful sores that will come upon people, some kind of massive epidemic uh, that drugs could not, uh, you know, wipe out. It's very um, closely aligned to the sixth plague that was released upon Egypt about the you know, body ulcers and all these things. Bull number two, the sea turned to blood. Everything in the sea that is living dies. It becomes a putrid you know, um, bowl of stench. And then river and springs turn to blood. So now there's no fresh water. And then the sun gives power to scorch people with fire. That's bull number three. So here you go. Global warming is found right there. God's going to intensify the heat of the sun to the degree that it will begin burning up. Um, and it will begin uh, releasing you know, into the atmosphere um, hotter and hotter until it says it's given the power to scorch people. And so when the sun burns hotter like that, what happens in the natural? Well, we know that polar ice caps will melt. And so if they do, the sea will rise by 200 feet. And then cities like New York, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong will no, be no more. They'll all be underwater because of the rise in the sea level. And so there's the ramifications of that happening. But it happens with the bull judgment, uh, not because of the realm of humanity. Now, I don't want to get into a debate about global warming. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? That the, warm, that the earth is getting warmer, absolutely, that the earth's temperatures fluctuate. How much does man contribute to that? I don't know. Certainly some, but I don't think it's the whole thing. But I just want you to know, you don't have to live in fear of that because that's not what wipes out the world, okay? <laughs> Something like that happens, but it happens during the tribulation, 
during this bull judgment. Here's bull number five, darkness across the world. Very uh, ecliptic as to what happened when Jesus was crucified on the cross and darkness covered the land. And then bull number six, the Euphrates River dries up in preparation for the battle of Armageddon. And so the, um, the, the nations of the world will gather there. We'll talk about that next week because that is what precipitates, what? The second coming of Jesus. And so this is what Jesus is explaining to his disciples uh, these are the things that are going to be happening, and these are the things that are going to be going on, and then the Son of Man will come back. Bowl number seven, there's thunder, lightning, and a great, great earthquake. Now, having said all that, let me wrap this up. Give me three minutes, maybe four. Uh, some people struggle when they hear about this or they read this, and they say, well, that's exactly why I do not want to put my faith and my hope in God. How in the world can I put my faith and hope in a God who acts like this? This is not a loving thing to do. In fact, it's, it's horrible to allow such horrific things and then to sanction them on top of that. And so again, we have a very difficult time comprehending the seriousness of sin. We think God should have just been able to wink it away, walk away, my, you know, you're bad, um, it's okay, I'll, I'll take care of everything. Now, we do know this, the Bible says this, that God absolutely takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, 11, right? We don't think about this because we don't have to think about it. It's kind of like physical death. Most people don't sit around and think about physical death because we don't have to. But when are you confronted with it? When somebody you love dies. Now you have to think about it. It's right in front of you. I think Jesus gave us this and said, blessed is the person who reads this and heeds it, because again, we're talking about living in light of eternity. If I'm living my life here on planet earth, knowing that God has given me time, a limited amount of time called my life, he's given me talents and abilities and treasures, financial things, financial means, resources, in order to help make disciples of the world, then I will rearrange my schedule. I will rearrange my priorities. I will look at my life differently than I would if I just put this into my back of my mind and say, well, eh, really not a big deal, not my thing. I'm not, I'm not, uh, that's really not what God wants me to do. I, I want to do something else. Well, it does not matter what your vocation may be or where it may be, you are the missionary on that scene. And yes, it is your responsibility, it is my responsibility to allow God to leverage those opportunities for us to tell people about Jesus. Listen, you were created in God's image. You have this sense of justice. You know that justice has to be done. So how does God maintain his justice against sin while loving the sinner? And that's where Jesus came into it. To the realm. That's where the cross, the cross is where the, the crossroad of God's justice and his love and his grace and his mercy. Jesus drank of the cup of God's wrath so that humanity would never have to drink of that cup, so that we would never have to experience any of these judges, judgments, that we'd never have to experience eternal death or separation from God. That's why Jesus came into the world. We have that relationship with him. And spiritually speaking, we were dead towards God. Unless he gives us the miracle of life, we stay dead. Only Jesus came to what? To make dead men live, dead women live. And so God chose to pour out his justice on man's, of man's sin upon his son so that he could in turn pour out Jesus' righteousness upon us. That's our message. So let me close with this example. It's kind of a... Um, a picture example uh, that we can use to explain to people. The Bible says, unless you are justified before God, you will never enter into his presence. So the word justified means just as if I've never sinned. So that means that when I die physically, in order for me to gain entrance into God's presence, I have to be in a perfected condition, just as if I've never sinned. How can I reach or even obtain that kind of position? Well, that's where Jesus came in. So the Bible says when you give your life to Christ, when you ask him to come into your heart and your life to be Savior and Lord of your life, that God makes a great exchange. 
He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for you so that through him you might become the righteousness of, of Christ. So think of it in terms like this. Let's say I have a book, and the title of that book is The Life and Times of Jesus Christ. And you were to open up that book, you begin reading about the life and times of Jesus, and you read about all the works that he did, his obedience, his purity. He always did things with right motives. Oh, wait, it's called the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? We're, we're reading about Jesus, the life and times of Jesus. Now, I have a second book. It's entitled The Life and Times of Greg. And you open up that book. And much to my embarrassment, you read that book. And you read about all of my mismanagement of my motives, my sinful thoughts, my acts of disobedience, my immorality, my broken promises, my betrayal perhaps towards friends or family members. And you read about all the dirt that is on me. And so now you have two separate books, the life and, the, the life and times of Jesus, the life and times of Greg. So when you give your heart to Christ, here's what Jesus does. Let's say the jacket of this book, my, my life, he takes it off. And he takes off his, the jacket off his book, puts it, puts it on mine, and takes mine and puts it on his. So now all of a sudden, when you pick up the book called The Life and Times of Greg, you're not going to read about my sin. You're not going to read about my impure motives. You're not going to read about the things that I did wrong. You're going to read about what? You're going to read about Jesus in me, a life of perfection, a life of obedience, a life of morality, a life of purity, a life of perfect love. Why? Because Jesus took his cover and put it over my book. He made that great exchange. So that is the word justification. As I stand before a holy God, it is just as if I have never sinned. That is the gift of God's grace. That is the age in which we live. So how do you make that exchange? It's as simple as ABC. We do this in Vacation Bible School here at our church. A, you admit that you've sinned. You have blown it. You are broken. You are a wreck. You can't, you can't help yourself. You can't mend yourself. You can't make yourself perfect, good enough to enter into God's presence. There's nothing you can do. There is no work that you could accomplish. You are helpless in and of yourself, but B is that you believe in Jesus. You put your hope, your faith, and trust in Christ alone and his payment on the cross for your sin debt, and when you do that, he makes the exchange. He exchanges his debt for yours so that he reverses the jackets on the book so when God looks at you, he sees Christ. You've made the exchange. Now, does it mean that I never sin? Absolutely not. But from God's perspective, he just sees Jesus. And so I can see as I just confess Christ, and I, I confess him to be Savior and Lord of my life. I'm asking him to be my Savior, to for me, be my forgiver of my sin, my sin debt, and to be Lord of my life so that I give him control, that I give him the essence of my life over to him so that he may guide and direct my life from that day forward. That I might live in light of his eternity. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you.